0: Our first scripture reading comes from the book of Romans. As we preach through the book of Psalms, we like to have a New Testament reading. And so we'll have Dina come and read for us from Romans chapter four. Sadly, in your bulletins, it's not there as we ran out of space. So you can turn your Bibles or turn it into device to Romans chapter four. Dina.
1: Romans four verses one to 12. just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised.
0: As mentioned, we're in a sermon series in the Book of Psalms. The Book of Psalms is a collection of poems and prayers and songs offered up to God. In it, we see truths about sin, redemption, and aspects of God's character. Today, we find ourselves in Psalm 29. It's a praise psalm. It tells us with great clarity who God is, what he's done, and what he's promised. Before we walk through this passage, we'll have Elizabeth Come and read for us. Elizabeth, if you would.
2: Psalm 29, a Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Siron like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his
0: people with peace. Before we spend some time reflecting on this psalm, would you bow your heads uh, with me in prayer once more? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths found in your word. We pray that they would be clear to us and that you would strengthen us by it, that we'd be comforted And know the peace of Christ through it. And that ultimately our eyes will be lifted to praise you as the one true God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few months, we've become well accustomed in Ottawa to thunderstorms, tornadoes, hail, forest fires. It's almost like every week we have some cataclysmic disaster that we have to face. And though that might come off as an overstatement, we have seen our fair share of extreme weather. And as we experience these events, we can be pushed to wonder, where is God in this? But maybe you're really asking that because of the destruction you see. But when you think of the weather, when you think of the clouds, you have no thoughts about God. You simply think that the weather cycle or our water cycle is what's producing what you see. We can be a people that don't think about God being involved in our weather or in creation. But, god, but David didn't see it that way. David writes here a poem as a polemic. A polemic's not a word that we're very familiar with, but it's a, it's a kind of writing that's against a particular teaching. And so he writes a polemic against the false, Baal, or false god Baal, Baal was worshipped by the surrounding nations as the god of fertility and storms. I know that seems like an odd union, but hear me out. As rain allows the ground to be fertile, so the womb is open to bring about life. And this is what the surrounding nations thought. And they attributed this to Baal. But David knew that this was a false deity that had no power and that the false worship that existed for him should be corrected. And though we might not be attributing the cataclysmic disasters that we see or weather that we see to false deities, we can still be a people who do not consider God at all. We can be naturalists or deists who think that God is not intimately involved in creation. Instead, our weather is just the outworkings of meteorology. But again, to David, that wasn't the case. He writes to us correcting our thinking, that we would see the storms as an act of God, something that's praiseworthy. And if we're honest, and maybe this is just me, when I see a midday storm, I'm not pushed to praise. I'm I'm perplexed. And maybe that's where you find yourself today. And so would God give us clarity to our confusion? And in this psalm, that would we see that God is calling us to praise him for his power and his position, which ultimately leads to the promise of strength and peace. And so our first point is this, a call for credit. A call for credit. David here is calling heavenly beings to ascribe worship to God. In the Hebrew, The word heavenly beings is sons of Elohim or sons of God, which is regularly attributed to angels and other spiritual beings. And the word ascribe is not one that we use often. It means to give credit. God, through David, is calling angels to rightly credit God with his handiwork. And if angels who see God need to be told how to rightly speak and worship God, how much more do we need this reminder? This call to ascribe or give credit doesn't just happen once, it happens three times. And in Hebrew thought, this is like the underlining, bolding, and exclamation point that, hey, we need to listen to this. And that is what David is saying. He's saying this is really important. Rightly credit God for who he is. Rightly credit him with glory, strength, splendor, and holiness. Out of those four words, strength is the one that we're most familiar with. It can be translated either strength or power. And we can quickly think of the rushing wind or wave as an act of power. But we often don't conceptualize that that's actually God at work instead we just take it for fact that it's nature but he is the one who initiates and allows creation to have such a thrust later on in this poem we'll see that it is God who is displaying his power through such acts and so we are called to credit God for his strength but also with glory what does it mean to credit God with glory Glory is a word that means weighty. There's a gravity that God has for inherently who he is, his very nature. When we see somebody who's to be respected walk through a door, there's a natural gravitas that they have. You know that they are to be respected for either who they are or what they've done. There's a weightiness behind it. But God is far greater than any CEO or politician or even parent. His weightiness cannot be compared to such things. He is in his own category of gravitas. Our God is one of strength, glory, and splendor. Splendor is maybe something that you know. We have our splenda, which is supposed to be an uptick of goodness in our coffees. But what splendor means is beauty or magnificence. It's just absolute grandeur. It's awe-inspiring. It's a feeling of beauty that just makes you feel blown away. Some of you might be familiar with this as you think of the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, or maybe simply looking at the night sky. Or maybe you feel that feeling when you look at our Parliament buildings. It brings out this emotion of just absolute grandeur and beauty. And we might experience this with other things as we look upon them. But this is intrinsic to who God is. He's magnificent. He's a God of splendor and beauty. And lastly, we are to credit God with holiness. The idea of splendor is related to holiness, but they're different. It will strike fear in our hearts and it will produce awe in our bones. That is what holiness should invoke. But what it means is to be other, to be set apart. We don't have a, a category for ho- holy in our world. We can often think that it means some sort of sterile substance. We can, we can think of it's God's attribute of purel. It disinfects and purifies. But if we... Only think of holiness in morality senses. It's highly reductionistic. And in many ways, the stage is set for what we are to read next by God's holiness. If we were to speak about morality, it would be better for us to use the term goodness. And God is spoken as one who is good. And so, holiness is to be set apart. All of God's attributes are actually colored by holiness. It colors His justice, His wrath, His love, His power. He's set apart in all that He does. It's a call to worship Him as He is. It's not some sort of outfit of praise. Some of your Bibles might say in the superscript articles or of worship or holy attire. I, I, I don't agree with that, and many scholars don't either. It's far more than clothing. Instead, it's worship that's fitting to the one who is holy. To speak of him and worship him rightly, reflecting his nature. This whole reading must be read through that lens. That we know and see that God's work God's power doesn't fall into our categories of logic, our standards of justice, or even our thinking of good. Our God is holy, and the heavenly hosts are called to acknowledge Him for who He is, and so are we. We are to acknowledge Him in our speaking, in our singing, in our our thinking. A call to ascribe rightly and believe who God says He is. I was going to say all of you in this room know how difficult it is to say my last name, but there are some new faces in this room. For those of you who don't know, my last name is Bupal Palay, And people often pronounce it and botch it, and that's completely fine. That's completely normal. I don't hold it against them, and I don't hold it against any of you if you've tried or attempted. But when it comes to God, and we wrongly address Him, and speak about him, it's of great concern. It's something that wrongly describes who he is. His character is not captured. His attributes are not admired. And this is what David is saying here. He says, say his name correctly. He's Yahweh. He's Lord. He's God. Pronounce it with the correct accents, correct emphases, Speak of Him as the weighty one, as the strong one, as the holy one. Speak of Him as we ought to. Give Him credit for who He is, what He's done, and what He's promised. We are called, like the angels, to rightly worship God for who He is. Some of you in this room know God in deeper ways than I ever could. You think in these terms naturally, it's normal. You, you think of God as glorious, holy, one of splendor. But even you, even you need such a reminder because sometimes something that is deeply experienced and often experienced can be too familiar. You can experience the curse of familiarity It can become lackluster with time. The grandfather clock that you own isn't so great anymore. The parliament that you see is not grand anymore. The CN Tower isn't that large. Niagara Falls don't look as beautiful. And so, all that grandeur is lost. All the beauty is not acknowledged. And so maybe that's where you find yourself today. That you know God is one of strength, one of glory, one of holiness but you don't have the emotions that come with it. Be reminded today of his immensity, his power over all of the earth, how glorious he is, how truly unfathomably great our God is all that he is and does. He is beyond our conception of different. He is set apart. For those of you who are getting to know him and maybe don't know him, and have attributed the power of God to the false deity of the universe or yourself, would you know with clarity today not only who God is, but what he's done? This leads us to our second point. What has God done? He is a voice that vanquishes. Our second point is a voice that vanquishes. The next section that David pens here are seven lines of a poem pointing to God's perfect presence in the midst of a storm. Some view these verses as a description of God's action in a storm, and particularly God's word or his scripture going out and having these effects on people's lives. Though that's a reasonable understanding of this passage, I don't think that that's that gives us clarity behind what God is doing in these actions. Instead, I agree with the net Bible translators who see that the psalmist is describing God dramatically coming in a storm to battle his enemies and vindicate his people, which I believe is true. But before we unpack God's roaring war cry from the thunder and storm, David tells us details of where God begins his assault from. He begins his assault from over the waters. Over the waters. He speaks, his voice, his sound, his call is broadcast beginning over the waters. To us moderns, this might sound odd. Why does that even matter that God is over water? The idea of water or seas is metaphorically used throughout the scriptures. To describe a picture of chaos or evil, we see this imagery throughout the Bible from the beginning of Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, it tells us that the new heavens and new earth will actually have no seas, which is telling us that it has no evil or chaos. In this passage, we see that God is over the water, similar to his call in creation. Here we see that he's above the chaos, and he is not subject to his forces. He's not being pushed around by waves. Instead, he is ruling over it and sending forth his attack from it. The rest of the psalm tells us geographically what god's storming voice is doing as it sweeps through enemy lands starting from the sea to lebanon to sidon to kedesh and stopping at the temple it is as though that david looks out from the temple and sees this sweeping attack and each of these nations that are named here are all nations that are enemies to israel and they are all people in the land of Canaan that would have likely attributed their worship to Baal. This is the backdrop of God's voice being a thunderstorm that is attacking God's enemies. This gives clarity to us of the destructive language that's seen in this passage. We see first off that God is breaking the cedars. The cedars of Lebanon were the, one of the most iconic symbols of strength. And what happens? God breaks it with his voice. Has anybody in this room broken a tree? I don't think so. We, we might be familiar with the idea of snapping a stick. But God, with his voice, cracks these trees. Not just one, but verse 5 goes on. The second use of break is an ongoing breaking. And God is just breaking tree after tree after tree. The significance of this is not just sheer strength. God could show his strength in a multitude of ways. What this is, is the destruction of false deities. The cedars of Lebanon are found on mountaintops, and these mountaintops were thought to be the homes of these false deities. And so God's voice snaps these trees and points to God bringing false gods to nothing. David in the midst of recording this awesome power is just praising the Lord. He's praising God for his intention, his power, his force, his victory. The word majesty here is a regal term. It's a it points to God's royal nature communicating to us his dominion and his control. When we read of trees breaking, earth shaking, fire flaming, it sounds like uncontrolled catastrophe. And its effects on those who live in the midst of it do experience disaster, and it's quite saddening. We do grieve in one sense for what's taken place, But what's being emphasized in this psalm is something that we don't think about often. It's God's judgment. God is vanquishing the wicked through these means. He is a God who takes evil seriously. And he's doing this through natural disaster. He brings the nations and the people that are obstinate to him to move in fear. There's a verse here that tells us that Lebanon and Siron skip like a goat and an ox. And that's uncommon imagery to us. But what God is making clear is that he makes wicked nations that think they can stand their ground run in fear. This is not a happy skipping. This is a, I gotta skip and and skip town kind of skipping. And so take heart. Take heart that our God is not just standing by and not acting. He's reminding us of his working in the midst of the storm. He is standing above the chaos, defeating his enemies. His voice pours forth from the thunderstorm to bring about justice. Think about the storms that we've seen this past summer. The severe rain, thunder, and lightning. To many of us, we're prone to think that these are just normal weather patterns. We're programmed, as I mentioned, to be naturalists. But the scriptures point out that these storms are God's voice speaking, his arm of attack against his enemies. Does this not make sense that we've seen more storms in the last year, in Ontario and in Canada, in the world as a whole, as more and more society is anti-Christ and anti-God? we see that there's manifestations of God's judgment in our land. God is not passive. He's not just waiting. He is patient and forbearing with us in our sin. But he's also a God who is swift to act and for the sake of justice. So what do we take from these verses? Be reminded of of our God that he's in control in the midst of chaos. Many of you are living lives right now of uncontrolled circumstances, and you feel like you're in the depths of what chaos can feel like. But know from this passage that God is above the chaos, he's ruling over it, and not only that, he's working through it to bring about his purposes. Trust in Him and trust in His work. Know that God is active in creation, working out judgment against His enemies on a larger scale. You can look at the headlines, I can look at the headlines and feel like we're hemmed in. That God is not active in this moment. And you might think that God's vanquishing needs to be that God takes a certain individual out of power. But what we see here is that God's Defeating of his enemies is larger than that. He's working out to strike fear in his opponents. He's removing their resources. He's leaving them barren. He strips the trees bare. We might not see that God is working, but he is. He's accomplishing this across the world against all of those who hate him. And so we've received a call to praise God for his power and his position. But lastly, we're told of his promise, the promise that we are to live in light of. And that's our third point. Often we conclude our messages here with a response of what I should do about this truth. But this passage doesn't end it in that way. It doesn't lend itself to that. Instead, it's almost like a reminder. Here's who God is and here's what he promises. David concludes with articulating the core message of his psalm that he's taught throughout it. Yahweh, the Lord God, is enthroned over the flood. He is king forever. He is not just in the storm, he's above it. He is Lord over the most destructive chaos that humanity has seen, the flood. We can look out in our world, in our lives, and wonder why why God? How is God in this? What is he doing? But I remind you that our God is holy. He is set apart in all that he does. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. But he's not moving arbitrarily. David gives a hat tip to the flood in Noah's Ark. He reminds us that there's purpose behind calamity. And that God judges people through these instances. God is not surprised by it. He doesn't look at our storms and be like, oh no, what happened? No, he purposes it for his glory. He's vanquishing his enemies then and he's doing that to this day. Some of you that are high on the compassion scale right now are really struggling with the retributive justice of this passage. You're looking at me and be like, isn't God a God of love? Isn't God one that is patient and loving and kind? But we need to be reminded that our God is both. He's both retributive, but also retor- restorative. And if we were reminded of the truths of the gospel, we'd know that none of us should be alive right now. God's word tells us that we were once enemies of God, that we were obstinate in our sin, that we hated him, And we had no care for him till he called us to himself. We stood in line waiting for retribution to experience a destructive end. But God met us. He met us with restorative justice. He took the penalty for our sins that we don't need to stand in the wake of destruction. Instead, we can live with him and know him. So that we can be brought to a place of peace and not chaos. Our vanquishing king in this passage is the one who is enthroned over the chaos. It is this king that restores us and protects his people. And this king is Jesus Christ. The one who not only spoke over the water, but walked on the water, showing his power not by descending storms, but by calming them. This Jesus is the one that gives us confidence and the promise of strength for our weakness, for our peace, for our fears. And if you've yet to trust in him, you can call on him by faith that you would be saved from destruction and that you would know the peace and strength of Jesus Christ. For those who do know Christ today, the question is, will you credit him correctly for who he is what he's done and what he's promised our God has afforded to us a life of strength a life of peace and even as we read these last verses our our translation in the ESV says may the Lord strength give strength may the Lord bless in the Hebrew it's not causative it's not a question there's certainty and so would we end with such hope with such promise That our God gives strength to his people and peace and blessing to them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your character. We thank you that you are God who has spoken, gives us clarity for what you've done, that you are God of justice, and that you see and you care. And I pray that these truths will resound in our heart, that they will be strength to our bones, peace where fear continues to exist so that we be, be a people that know you and worship you correctly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.